Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. At the last Parsha, at the end of Lech Lecha, which we didn't read because we were reading the first third of every Parsha, but uh, what happens at the end of Parsha Lech Lecha uh, is that the very last thing that happens is Avraham took his son Ishmael and all his slaves and all those uh, males in his household, and he circumcises them. He's told to circumcise them, and he is circumcised uh, as well. And um, his son was 13, right? Ishmael was 13 when this happens. Um, and so the very last sentence is, thus Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on that very day, and all his household, his homeborn slaves, and those that had been bought from outsiders were circumcised with him. That is immediately what precedes verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1. All right, someone want to read the English of 18.1? The Lord appeared to him by the terebinths of Mamre. He was sitting at the entrance of the tent as the day grew hot. Looking up, he saw three men standing near him. As soon as he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to greet them, and bowing to the ground, he said, My lords, if it please you, do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought. Bathe your feet and recline under the tree, and let me fetch a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. Then go on, seeing that you have come to your servant's way. They replied, Do as you have said. Okay. So, uh... And God appeared. We get this, this, uh, resh, the yud resh aleph, right, with the verb about seeing. Resh aleph hey, ra'a, ro'eh. So in this sense, it's God appears, right? God causes God's self to be seen. Um, so related to the verb to see, but, uh, to, to make one's self, to make something seen. God makes God's self seen to Avraham, but notice we don't get Avraham. Right? We just get Elav to him. But Elone Mamre. At the terebinths of Mamre. Okay. So we know about the terebinths of Mamre, yes? This is at Hebron, associated with Avraham. Uh, Mam- uh, the terebinth is a ancient tree, and Lots of, um, in the ancient Near East, lots of places that are holy sites are groves of trees where there's one tree that stands apart. That often becomes a sacred tree. The terebinths of Mamre are famous in the uh, ancient world. There are lots of tales and narratives uh, that involve uh, this spot. The Oak of Avraham is another way of talking about this. So clearly it's associated with Avraham, probably associated with Sarai before that. Sarai is associated with Mamre, where she spends most of her life. Um, It's important to remember in all of these stories that a lot of the material we would have had on Sarai and then later Sarah is gone. A lot of it is just gone. The matriarchs would have had their own narratives. They would have had their own stories that were told in a matrilineal culture, a matrilocal, matrilineal culture. So we talked a lot about this last year when we were talking about Genesis, that a lot of the Sarai material is lost to us. It is very possible that Mamre is associated with Sarai originally. Um, so, and there's sort of lots of reasons that, um, that it's more her than Avraham, actually. I'd be curious to mm-hmm. So, um, so if you if you trace Avraham's journeys, he he kind of comes and goes. He starts in Ur, then he's in Haran, and then he's here. And Sarai doesn't go with him necessarily everywhere he goes. And so it, it seems that she stays, and that it was one of the sites that um, is known for uh, worship of the moon and stuff that would place Sarai in a position to be a very high up person in that religious order. So it's very possible she's a priestess. You know, Sarai means princess, you know, very high ranking. And so it's very possible she was originally, you know, associated with the goddess and Mamre and um, that 
that set of cultic practices. Um, so, and, and the book Sarah the Priestess is a great book that explains a lot of looking at the text and where they are and where she originates and where, you know, Abraham is and originates and goes and does that it, it seems that uh, Sarai is much more associated with Hebron and Mamre. Yes, that is Sabina Tubal um, that we talked about last year. It's her book on Sarai the Priestess. Um, so what, what immediately do we have here? You, you know that the, whenever there's something missing, it's an invitation, right, for the rabbis to to give us Midrash, to have us read the white fire that is between the black fire. So immediately there's something odd to the rabbis that's an invitation for them. So God appeared to him in the terebinths of Mamre, and he's sitting at the entrance of the tent at the heat of the day. And he lifts up his eyes, and here we get the word vayar again, and what appears to him? Three people, we've had this word nitzavim, right? Kind of boom, they're there. They're boom, really there. Vayera, Right, and he as soon as he sees them, he goes to greet them from the opening of the tent, and he bows low to the ground. What's what's missing already here for the rabbis? What's going on that 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 they're going to have a question about already? God appears to him. Yep. Where did it come from? I'm sitting at the entrance of his tent. You would think, you know, it's a desert. So it seems like it would be weird for them to be able to sneak up that he all of a sudden sees them. Okay? God disappears. God disappears. I mean, he doesn't. (laughs) Which presumably is not hard for him. So, well, we'll see. Right, because there's lots of ways to read it. But already we have, unless if they're separate, we have a problem because God appears, and what usually happens next? God talks. God talks. God appears because God has a purpose, presumably for appearing, for being there. Right? God just doesn't appear for the heck of it. Usually there's something God's going to do, or say, or instruct, or ask, or demand, or challenge, or whatever. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. God appears, and the next thing, Abraham lifts his eyes and suddenly sees three beings, Anashim, three men, according to the right, the literal translation. And he gets up and he runs to greet them from the entrance and he bows low to the ground. All right, so Pam has suggested, which we're going to get to, one interpretation that resolves this. Um, but if not, it's kind of an interesting question what God is doing here. So the rabbis, one, if we if we don't read it the way Pam is gonna that we're gonna go to in just a second, if we don't do that, then one way to resolve this, say the rabbis, is what has just happened to Abraham? He was circumcised. So God is not coming to instruct him. God is coming comfort him. to comfort him. God is coming to visit. Because that's what one does. And besides, he's looking, if, if he has to look up to see the three men, when he sees God, or when God appears, he must be looking down. So it's sort of an inward kind of thing of appearance. So, so God's appearance doesn't necessarily mean a vision that he right lifts up, because he doesn't lift up his eyes until the next few verses, right? So, so he... So if God is coming to visit, then, you know, what the rabbis tell us is this is God teaching us how we're supposed to behave. That when someone is ill, what we need to do is show up. And notice God doesn't say anything. God doesn't talk. God doesn't promise it's going to be okay. Right? God does that other times. So it's not that that's not within God's nature. God doesn't do or say anything. God just shows up. And the rabbis say this is a very, very, very important teaching by God for us in Torah, that when someone is ill that we care about, we need to just show up. Same with mourning. Mm-hmm. Same with mourning. mourning. Right? That, that becomes the mourning practices exactly in Judaism, which is you show up, 
And traditionally in a house of mourning, the door is left open or, or unlocked and you come in and you sit down and shut up. The host you know, the, of the house does not greet you because they're mourning. Um, and so they are seated. You walk in and you don't speak until the mourner speaks to you. Now, if that be the case, then Abraham does another wonderful thing because the minute he sees the three men, he forgets about what's hurting him and he gets up and he runs toward them. So so how hospitable is Avraham? Ask the rabbis. Avraham is so hospitable that, and the third day after circumcision is supposedly the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that immense amount of pain, Avraham jumps up and runs to meet these guests. He doesn't even say, come here. He doesn't say, come here. He doesn't limp over, right? He jumps up and runs to greet them. This, for the rabbis, um, is absolutely a teaching about how it is we're supposed to uh, welcome others and how we are to be hospitable. It's not just that you welcome them in. It's that you rush with eagerness to do it even if it's of great, great difficulty to you. Is it also about going to help others Mm -hmm. when you are in pain and that that can help lift you up as well? So, I mean, I think definitely that's true. Definitely that's true. That um, even when we're in pain, sometimes Davka, you know, when we're in pain, what's helpful is for us to reach out to somebody else who's in need and it helps take our minds off of our own self-involved, right, situation. Absolutely. So he jumps up and rushes to meet these folk, which seems to be pretty okay, but the rabbis have a problem with what just happened. He didn't just forget about his own pain. What else did he forget about? About God. So the rabbis say, wait a minute. God's come to visit, and Abraham sees three strangers, jumps up, and runs to meet them, meaning left God sitting in the apartment. Like, just a sec. I'll be right back. Right? And rushes out. So the rabbis say another teaching about how important it is, hachnasat orchim, how important it is to welcome guests and to be hospitable. Is it, is it Abraham left even God's presence to do that? That put God on hold in order to do that? And God seems to be fine with that. So that Abraham understands it and God approves of Avraham rushing to meet these guests and to welcome them. All right. What is he doing sitting at the entrance of the tent at the heat of the day? Where, where, where should you be in the heat of the day? In the tent, right? You should be inside where it's cool. You should be lying down in the shade. He's been circumcised, Right. Uh, if, so if we go with the rabbi's interpretation that this is soon after his circumcision, then he truly should be laying down with a wet towel right mm-hmm. across his forehead and tending to himself. He's sitting at the entrance of the tent at the heat of the day. Why? Looking for a mitzvah opportunity. Maybe there's a breeze going. For the rabbis, it's exactly what Bert said. He is looking for the opportunity to welcome guests. That it's the heat of the day when not many people are around. Most people are not out and about at the heat of the day in in Israel, right? In the southern Israel. You're not out in the heat of the day. You're in somewhere where you're in the shade. Um, and so he's, he's eager because he hasn't seen anybody. And so even at the heat of the day, he's hoping that there will be somebody coming by his tent. Why did he invite them in the tent? Why did he what? He said, don't go past me. Mm-hmm. And the tent's in back of him. It's cool. All the things they're going to bring to him are in the tent. The bring to these people are in the tent. Why did he invite them in? Um, you know, I think at this point it's just his his realm. Like, don't go past me, meaning don't journey past my territory here. You know, my not just him, not just him right? My mm-hmm. place. Don't go by my place. Let let me host you. Um, so by bowing to the ground, he immediately demonstrates that he considers them. Right of higher status than himself, um, and what what when he says that to them, what does he say? Vayomer Adonai, im da matzati chen be'enecha. If I found favor in your eyes, al nata avor me'al avadecha. Don't please pass your servant. Right. So he dresses them as he dresses one of them. Adonai, my master. So 
He addresses one of them. Why not all three? We don't know. Um, but if we go with the reading Pam suggested earlier, he's actually speaking to God. That for Abraham, God appears and appears as this this person. And so he addresses God, right? And says, Adonai, if I have found favor in your sight, please don't pass by your servant. So two ways to read these, these Anashim, that they are separate and Abraham has left God's presence to go deal with them. Or this, this is why there is nothing after and God appeared to them because this is how God appears to them. This is the detail of uh, appears to him. This is the detail of how God appears to Abraham. If it's three, why address one? Possibly it looks like one's the leader. You know, and the other two are in service to that one. Don't know. Interesting. It says here in the commentary that Rashi and Maimonides disagree on this. Right. That Rashi thinks it's plural and Maimonides thinks it's singular. So remember, so right, Adonai, right, plural Adoni is, is singular. Um, remember that um, the Torah text is not vocalized. So what you see in the English as an S... depends completely on whether this is a chirik or a kamatz. So this is Adoni, this is Adonai. What do you mean the Torah text is not vocalized? There are no vowels in the Torah. Right? It's not vocalized. So whenever the English translation reads, puts an S on here, it's because the English translation is reading it Adonai. Because that makes sense if you have three of them. Yeah. But then it's going to be singular. We're going to see that it get, it's um, it's singular here. Right? Al na ta'avor. Please do not pass. The ta'avor is not plural. It's singular. So it actually makes more sense to read this Adoni. My Lord rather than Adonai, my lords, because of what follows, is a singular form of the verb ta'avor, pass by. This is a very interesting thing, in that in Reconstructionism, we also talk about how there is a spark of divinity in every single person. So, in fact, we can say we are seeing God when we look into each other's eyes. Absolutely, 100%. But anything that says they replied, do as you have said. Now you So it's, right, so it's going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, it's very confusing. Yeah. Right? It's right? It's very confusing. All right. So let some water be brought because when somebody's been traveling a long time in the desert, um, in, uh, I'm so sorry, um, what are, what are the things that you wear on your feet that are open? Thank, thank you. When you're walking in the desert in sandals, um, your feet get all dusty and terrible while you're traveling. And so the water is actually to wash their feet. So this is we see this with Jesus, right? This is a, the great sign of hospitality is to wash someone's feet who's been traveling, to welcome them in and to wash their feet. There's now a ceremony um, that's pretty popular. We did it with Eliana. Um, as a sign of welcome for baby girls is to wash their feet um, in a baby naming ceremony and uh, to say welcome you are so welcome here Um, and it's very sweet people bring water from different places that are important to them um, and pour it into a bowl and why not for boys too we, we could. I think that the, the desire was to find something special something something special and something physical that boys have circumcision, sure, and there isn't circumcision. <laughs> thank God, there isn't that for girls. Um, so, so I think there was a desire to physicalize somehow the baby naming for girls, um, and it's very sweet when it's done. It's really very sweet. People explain where they get the, brought the water from and why and what they wish for her, you know, um, that they find at that place and. Um, 
and then washing her feet. It's lovely. The story is so interesting, too, in that as we were sitting here listening to all these men being circumcised, all of us are going, oh, <laughs> right, right. It's very uncomfortable to think about that many people going through the same ritual <coughs> at the same time. At that age. And they're not babies. They're not they're, babies, right. I couldn't help thinking that perhaps um, Abraham in his pain was delusional and thought he only saw one <laughs> Right? So Abraham was in so much pain, he was delusional. It was really just one person, and he saw three. Right? And we don't see anything about a rag with wine on it. Yeah, right. Yet. Um, But he really seems to have forgotten about his own problems here. Right. He's totally focused on them. Totally focused on them. So come, um, you know, bathe your feet and, and rest under the tree, and let me fetch a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. Then go on, seeing that you have come your servant's way. And they replied, do as you have said. All right. So what happens next? A morsel of bread. Remember that. Okay, so what happens next? When I read this, um, the way he's presenting his offer to me is is saying, let me make, instead of saying, let me make a big feast and we'll bring out the best wine, which might be too much for these people and they don't want to impose so he's just really doing it in a very kind of let me bring you a little water and let me bring you a little morsel of bread so saying it's really not so much trouble and then once they said yes then he does all this stuff so that he's He's offering them hospitality in a way that makes it easy for them to accept yes, yes. and then easy for them to it's receive. No, no, it's a little of this, little of that. No, so another that. lesson for us yeah. is not just that we offer hospitality, but how we do it. Yeah. Right? He's also that, underestimating his wealth. He's saying, all I have, I, I have a little bit of bread, that I'm not a very rich man. And then he shows them, of course. Um, so, but the what would have given that away is his tent mm-hmm. and his flocks and his yeah. right. He's got a lot of slaves and a, I mean he's a sheikh, and so it, it would be pretty obvious that they're not in a bad neighborhood. But he, yes, but he, this is part and parcel. He calls him Lord. He bends down on the ground. It's like as if he's a poor servant who well, I, I just have a morsel of bread for you. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's. I think Pam's right. I think he's doing this in a way that says, "Come in and you'll eat a little, right?" And so that they'll say yes. I mean, someone offers you their sandwich, you don't take it. Someone offers you a handful of potato chips, you might, right? You don't want to take a lot from somebody, but if they offer you a little something. You might say, okay. He then throws a quite a big dinner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what happens next? Do you want somebody want to read next? Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah, or Sarai, and said, quick, three seers of choice flour, knead and make cakes. Then Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and choice, and gave it to a servant boy who hastened to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them, and he waited on them under the tree as they ate. Okay. Right. So he runs into the tent to Sarah and says, quick, three seahs of choice flour. Choice flour is the best wheat flour that they have. And this is what was used to make uh, cakes for offerings. Right. So this was the, the best, finest flour that they have. Knead and make cakes. Then he runs to the herd, takes a calf, mm-hmm. gives it to a servant who hastened to, of course, slaughter yeah, really. and prepare it. So that that takes a long time. Mm-hmm. But, but also, this is one of the most generous mm-hmm. meals you could offer someone, particularly a stranger. Right? This, this is a meal fit for a prince. To slaughter a calf would have been a very, very extravagant meal. And... and, and not gift, but um, you know, to do that is, is hugely expensive. It's a choice calf, too. And it's a it's choice calf. One. Exactly. It's not the skinny one that, you know, they were saving. Prime calf. Prime calf from, in Texas, they call that prime calf. Why is she serving him a non-kosher, them a non-kosher? Ah, uh, now, that's a whole that why other business. Because he knew it was kosher. Oh, my God. He knew it wasn't kosher. So curds and milk. 
So milk was precious in the uh, ancient Near East. Curds would have been labneh. So labneh or like a yogurt cheese. It's you know it's the curdled uh, milks, and so it's fat. So it's got a lot of protein. Um, and so this is a very very extravagant meal. Um, and if we seriously are asking the kashrut question, I'm, I can answer it. But are we seriously asking that? No. Okay, good. Because um, we don't have that rule yet. Um, maybe Abraham knew it, and that's why he didn't share the meal with us. And, and, um, and in Torah, it is thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. So it's not a calf. It's a kid. And you shall not see it in its mother's milk. That is the only prohibition in Torah. Right about about eating any kind of meat with a dairy. It's the only time it's mentioned. That's the only thing it says, and it's about the. It just seems to be you can eat meat and you can eat milk, but to see a baby in its mother's milk just seemed like one step beyond what is appropriate for people to do. Um, do you know the joke about this? That God's on Mount Sinai and says to Moshe. That thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. And Moshe says, I understand, Lord. So we shall not eat meat and milk from the same dishes. And God says, thou shalt not see a kid in its mother's milk. And he says, ah, right, no cheeseburgers. <laughs> God says, thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. And he says, ah, right, we need two sinks and two dishwashers for all the different pots and utensils and God says you know what do whatever you want <laughs> so so this meal's been prepared and he waits on them under the tree as they eat why, why would he have joined them does he see them himself then as less than, than the three strangers um, so, you know it, I don't I don't know, um, but I would imagine it's about um, hospitality mm-hmm. requires you serving your guests first and having them eat their fill. Um, it doesn't really tell us, you know. We, I don't, and I don't know any, any notes on it that tell me. Um, Isn't that part of his whole humility, why? this whole yeah. thing, yeah. that his at, his basic attitude of humility, yeah. of of kindness to the guest, and and I won't even eat you. You do it. I think so. Yeah, because he wouldn't want to insult them. You know, he he certainly wouldn't want to insult them. But the rabbis he go somewhere. See himself as a host, though. He sees himself, in a sense, as a servant. But but there's not much there's not much difference in the ancient world. Host and servant, right? If you're welcoming guests and preparing this extravagant, lavish meal, they know he has the money to do that. He's a wealthy man. He's he's acting as their servant. That's that's kind of hospitality. Like that, it, it's not a far distance from host to servant if you go the extreme of being um, hospitable. It still isn't. They're still very close. When you have a dinner party for people, right? You're the the servant preparing the food. No, and you're eating with it. You're eating no but maybe he had lunch already. Maybe he had a cheeseburger. Because <laughs> <laughs> so if these were people that lived in the next tent, he would have probably eaten. I think it's more than the servant part is more that they they might be God. I mean, you know, they appeared and, and he maybe struck with this idea. You know? And so the rabbis have an issue here. What's the rabbi's issue here? Where we part of here that that they're sit that he he feeds them and they sit and he's with them as they sit under the tree and eat. What's the rabbi's question here? Why would gods need to eat? Angels eat? Since when do angels eat? Right? It makes absolutely zero sense. Angels, really? So some Mepharshim say that they're pretending to eat. (laughs) So that... That's what we do when we diet. That's that's what we do when we diet. That's what we do when we're angels appearing to people and not wanting to freak them out. Like, we pretend to eat. Okay? Um, interesting. Well, there's an opportunity for them to show respect whether they eat or not. What else can you show somebody that shows up to your door? That, them, them eating shows Avraham respect? No, it allowed him to, to show respect for somebody. 
the respect for God. It was a way, what else do you do when somebody shows up at your door? I mean, what else do you have to offer? Right. The, the rabbi's question is, how, how could they eat? I understand, but it was just a, it's a symbolic gesture, I think. That he can, it's a respectful way of greeting a stranger. Right. We, we get why Avraham greets them that way. The rabbis are asking, if they're angels, they can't eat. <laughs> right. That, yes, we understand Avraham's behavior. But they, so what I hear you saying is that their gesture to accept is to eat. Yeah. Or well, it wasn't some kind of offering? Because, I mean, there's other faiths where, you know, people make food offering, offerings. You leave things out on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. And um, so it may have been you know, a little more you know, metaphorical or... He doesn't know the range. This may be convoluted, but maybe this is the plural singular issue. One of them was, in fact, an angel, and the other two are human. <laughs> All right, Elena Allen, not bad. So maybe two of them are Anashim. They are people, and only one was an angel. And so the other two, eight. <clears throat> Very good. But it goes even further. The tradition goes even further. And what? how do we translate that they were under the tree is the tachat ha'etz, right? Under the tree. And the mystical tradition goes further and says literally, under the tree. Oh, under. <laughs> Everyone's like, under. And that the teaching here is that we need to look under the tree for what's really going on, right? More than half a tree is, un- is underground. And that... That it's about going under who these people appear to be to, to get to the root of the issue. Great, Linda. Um, to the root of the issue, right? So um, that it's about Abraham is always ready to look at what's a stranger to most people, but he's ready to look deeper. And as you said, Judith, to see God in every person, that he's ready to look underneath the appearance. And I'm thinking of Day of the Dead and the Mexican tradition too, where they go to the place where the person's buried and they take the person's favorite dishes and the drinks the person liked and eat around the grave of the dead person to keep in mind the roots of that person. So this is very much the mystical tradition goes uh, to this idea that, that Avraham had the great capacity to not see a stranger, but to, to look much deeper, to look underneath, and to see the opportunity to host a guest. Um, and what would it mean for us to right, look deeper than what presents itself to us uh, on the heels of last week's Torah study and last week's conversation? And last week's election. And last being tested to see if we what, can look underneath. What does it mean for us to really to really look underneath and to not be ready to necessarily, right, jump on what is obvious. We what think is what what we think what is obvious. Well, he, he, this is where we started out with Abraham, isn't it? Talk <clears> to <throat> me. Bush. Say it again. Didn't we start out with this kind of situation with burning bush? Moses um, is the burning bush. <laughs> but 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 say more. It doesn't mean we can't uh, use uh, it. Well, doesn't mean we can't use it. It just means some people are gifted with the ability to see beyond some very special mm-hmm. people. It's a, it's a very special gift. Right. And so I think your point is absolutely correct. That you just forgot who it was. But Torah, Torah says the people who are special, the people who are leaders, the people who are going to be able to lead the Jewish people are able to see beyond the obvious. That Avraham does it here. Moshe is going to do it at the sne, right at the bush, where he turns aside to see and then looks deeply enough to notice that it's on fire and not being consumed, right? So over and over and over, the the tradition tells us it takes the capacity, the patience, the curiosity to see, to look, tachat, under the tree, right? What's going on underneath? And and remember, for the Kabbalists, the tree is what? Torah. Torah. You have... You, and it's life. You it's have the to. They're, they're, they're being under the tree is about getting underneath, right? What Torah? The tree is always Torah, of course. It's Chaim, right? It's Chaim. She's a tree of life. So, um, so getting under the tree is about getting underneath these pshat, these you know surface interpretations, and going deeply into what the 
Torah is trying to tell Isn't us. Isn't that what the whole world of psychology has tried to establish, looking beneath the surface? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, Since this tree imagery is staying with us, you talked about the um, oaks of Mamre. Uh-huh. There were... Was there a grove of them? or Because we, now we're talking about one tree and his tent by this tree. And is he alone? Is his tent removed from all others? Is he by the oaks? Or are there larger groups? Of I do not know the answer to that other than to say he's a very wealthy man. He's a sheikh. And a sheikh would not have a tent by himself. I, I would imagine there's servants and I mean, small, I mean and relatives and growth. right I mean he you know he's got a a compound there now is he by the one particular tree that's a sacred tree possibly very possibly yeah. um, now of course God forbid it can't be sacred in Torah right that's that's not okay that's a false idol that's an asherah right that's associated with the goddess but that so when I say sacred I'm saying from from another tradition in the region that Israelite religion emerges out of. So we still see the remnants of it here in our story, but by the time it gets to our story, it can't be a sacred tree or they'd be in trouble because that is the goddess. Well, um, but on the other hand, the Kabbalists called the tree symbolically life. So they reconstruct the symbol of the tree. Just like the snake was originally the creatress. The snake, the serpent, was the great goddess Right? It has to get reconstructed by patriarchy. The patriarchy has to smash the head of the snake under Adam's foot. There's a reason, right? It has it has to denigrate in reconstructing that symbol, right? So in the case of the tree, it's not denigrating, it's completely morphing what that means. Right? And another meaning for smashing the glass at the wedding. Stepping on the head of the snake? Okay. Um, Never the same way. Yeah, yeah, right. All right. So let's go to verse 9. They said to him, where is your wife Sarah? And he replied, there in the tent. Then one said, I will return to you next year and your wife Sarah shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind them. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah had stopped having the periods of women, and Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Now that I am withered, am I to have enjoyment with my husband so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall shall I in truth bear a child old as I am? Is anything too wondrous for the Lord? I will return to you at the same season next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah lied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was frightened. But he replied, you did laugh. (laughs) All right, this is a very bizarre scene here, yeah? Totally. All right, so they say, where's your wife Sarah? Right? And he says, essentially where she belongs, in the tent. Isn't that problem number one? What? Prior to the question, what evidence do they have that he even has a wife and that they, how do they know her, her name? So that, so possibly that's a problem. Possibly Avraham is a famous sheikh in the region and, you know, they know. They know. Um, but, but yes, it could be like, wait a minute, you know, indication number one, right, that something is up here. Yeah. Is there any connection with this? Isn't part of the story of the Garden of Eden where God asks a question, where, where is somebody? Ayeka. Right. And God should theoretically you? know. Right, right. Like God should know where you are. But in this case, they're asking Abraham right Sarah. where Sarah is. So there's really no reason. But shouldn't they know? They should I mean, know. If they're, well, if, if they're God... <laughs> but it just doesn't seem like a rhetorical question oh, to Avraham. Okay. You're like, Ayeka, yeah. where are you? Is a question about where am I, right? That, oh, okay. In the Garden of Eden. Right. Versus, where's your wife? Okay. It's about, does, you know, Avraham says she's in the tent. In the kitchen. So she, women stayed in the tent. 
when there were men who entered the compound who were not family, mm-hmm. women stayed in the privacy of the tent. Right? This is still the case with Bedouin. This is still the case in many parts of a more traditional society, um, parts of Islam, right? parts of many different cultures. Women stay covered and <clears throat> stay out of sight when strange men or men who are not family mm-hmm. are present. So this is not unusual that she would have been in the tent. That's where she belongs at a situation like this. This is absolutely appropriate. So um, now why do they ask, where is she? Um, Do they want to suggest they don't want to be overheard? Do they want to suggest this is a private conversation with Abraham? Um, Meaning we hope your wife's not around listening? All right, so, but what's the very next line? Sarah was listening (laughs) at the entrance of the tent um, which was behind him. All right. So what we know about Sarah already is she may be in her place and she may be following the rules in terms of where she's supposed to be and what she's supposed to be doing. But like the rest of the matriarchs, she is not going to act like passively, passively yeah. and as she's expected to behave. She's listening in on the conversation. She's eavesdropping on the conversation. All right. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And it's very clear, the text tells us very clearly, Sarah had stopped having the periods of women. Okay, so she's way past menstruation. Um, She hears what the angel says. Right? That I will return to you next year and your wife Sarah will have a son. She hears this. I skipped that line, sorry. She hears this and what does she do? She laughs. How does she laugh? Inwardly. Aha. Inwardly. Bitkirba. In the midst of herself. In 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 her. She laughs. All right. Talk to me about that laugh. Is there a difference between laughing out loud and laughing yeah, inside? It's quiet. It's, it's to yourself. It's, it's quiet. What does it suggest if it's quiet and to yourself? No one else hears. No one else hears, that's for sure. Maybe cynicism. It's doubt. Cynicism, doubt, skepticism. But she was she was like hiding and listening, so she didn't want to make any noise. So maybe she's laughing quietly because if she busts out laughing, she was over here. They're going to know she's right there listening. Okay? So if it's purposefully quiet, Okay, we can accept we, that, that then we don't know anything about the character of the laughter. But if it's not purposefully quiet, if she's laughing within, like really just inside, like then possibly it's doubt, cynicism, skepticism. What if, what if she recognizes what's going on and it's an inward laugh of joy? Okay, an inward laugh of joy? In the sense, in the sense that she kind of she kind of knows what's going on metaphysically here. She, you know, I mean, it's we we know that Abraham has kind of accepted God. We presume Sarah has also, and she might recognize what's going on here. And she maybe she sees this as a as a promise of some future joy that she had closed herself off to okay. for many many years. Okay. And she's and and, and it's like she laughs to herself, sort of like in hope. What has what has happened with Sarah waiting to have a son? She's been not only waiting a long time. What else has happened? She's seen other children born to his other wives. Ishmael. Yeah. She's seen Ishmael not only born but raised up to thirteen years old. Right. So she's not just been waiting. She's had to do and give up a lot. Her to try to give Abraham the son that he needs and wants, right? She gives him Hagar. Hagar has Ishmael. She watches Ishmael be raised by Abraham for 13 years. And, pre- and presumably they're very close, right? We know Abraham cares about his son. And from the next scenes, right, when he doesn't want him banished, because God says, don't fear for your son. He too will become, a, you know, a great nation. Um, so, so she's really been through the ringer, and now is told she's going to have a son uh, by next year. Okay. Either a laugh of hope 
Or a laugh of, yeah, right. <laughs> right. After all that I've been through, are you kidding me? Like, right? And, and she has no menstruation. She has no period. So that clearly is a problem, right? That, I mean, she, I have to believe she doesn't believe it. She blames her But I'll, I'll tell you that your explanation is more plausible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but maybe, you know, maybe it's mixed. Sometimes, right, we have mixed reactions to things that, you know, we both trust and believe and at the same time we're like, but there's no way, right? And, okay. So what does she say next? Now that I am what? Withered. Now that I am withered. I'm trying to find the um, Hebrew. Um, that's the wrong verse. Sarah laughed herself. Say, now that I am what, what verse is it? Twelve. Twelve. Um, it's twelve. Yeah. So now that I am withered, we'll, we'll go with that word. Am I to have what? Pleasure. Ah. Edna. so nice that women are expected to have pleasure. Very interesting that you would go there. Pleasure, and it is definitely sexual in nature. All right, Elena, take it another step. So, so women are expected to have pleasure. Take it the next step. What else might this be suggesting? Not only are they expected to have pleasure, but if they're going to conceive, they must orgasm. In the ancient world, there was a belief that among Akkadians um, that in order for a woman to conceive, she had to come to orgasm. So I have to believe a lot of women were very good actresses. Um, But... Edna, pleasure. So what she's saying is possibly, if we take that interpretation, I, I can't possibly, I'm withered, and I can't possibly conceive because I'm not going to have Edna. If I don't achieve Edna, I can't, I, I don't have a period, number one, problem number one. Number two, with him so old, I'm not going to have Edna. Maybe that was the laughter. So... It's not inconceivable (laughs) that she's laughing partly at right him. That he's going to give me the Edna that it's going to require for me to get pregnant? I don't think so. Um, But there's another interpretation that says that Edna actually means moist, very wet. So, which make in some sense makes better sense over and against withered and dried up, right? If I here I am withered and dried up, am I really going to know moisture? Like you know, be all, all that that means, both physically, um, in terms of sexuality, but also just um, in the ancient Near East, you know, that's the succulent, you know, like sign of life is things being filled with moisture, right? You know, um, wells, you know, water, all, all that stuff is about life and life giving and, um, and fecundity. Thank you. Um, and so I think in some ways the word Edna is supposed to be a play, not just pleasure, but, but the opposite of dried up. If, if I'm here, I am dried up. Am I really going to know being moist and, and fertile and productive and, and all of that? with all that that means, with all the resonances of pleasure as well. I don't think it's trying to pick one or the other. I think, as I said, Hebrew is a very deep language. I think it's trying to bring all of those um, images forward. And But she very clearly, you know, and she says, and my you know, master, my husband, is old. Like He's not going to be able to do it. <laughs> so do this, like change me from dried up to in a state of Edna, clearly. Vayomer Adonai el Avraham, lama zetzachaka, Sarah. And so God says to Avraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I in truth bear a child old as I am? Is anything too wondrous for God? I will return to you at the same season next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now, since when did God start talking? Right? We had angels sitting there a second ago. Then they're the ones that, like, you know, have been hanging around and having this conversation. And now all of a sudden God is speaking. This is not unusual in our Torah texts. If we'll remember Jacob and the angel, Ish, God. It's supposed to be kind of... um, Confusing because it, it's not a normal experience. This is not a normal conversation. This is not a normal lunch. They're not, you know, they're not hanging out at, you know, at taste, having a normal conversation. This is an, this is a uh, mysterious, right, otherworldly encounter. And so this is one of the ways that the text communicates that that the voices keep changing. God, angel, person, you know, we're not sure what's going on. And, All right. And if the Torah is written by people for people, which I believe, mm-hmm. uh, then there has to be voice because that's how we communicate is by voice. Yes, there are subtle forms of communication as well, but it's the voice that we use as our main communicator. So back to your point, Susan. So why does Sarah lie? She didn't believe in a miracle. She's afraid. She, why is she afraid? Because she doubted God. Well, she doesn't know anything about God. She, God didn't say anything that she knows. She heard three guys talking to her husband, saying she's going to have a kid. She, she laughs. She hasn't been yeah, seen. She she's inside the tent. Mm-hmm. Susan, what's the problem? Why is she afraid? She laughed. To herself. And so, how could he How could he know? How could anyone have heard her? Because that person read her thoughts. So I would be very afraid if someone read my thoughts. I don't know about you, but right, she's she has every right to be afraid because right here we have she laughs to herself, and God says to Abraham, "Why did Sarah laugh?" Saying. Right? God misquotes her. And God misquotes her. Now, talk to me about why God misquotes her. To be kind to Abraham. Aha. So the rabbis say God has good manners. God understands what's most important in a marriage. And God says, you know, she said, I'm too old. God leaves out the part where she says, Abraham is too old. He's going to give me Edna. Right? I don't think so. And um, from from here, the rabbis say, when your wife comes out and says, do I look fat in this dress? <laughs> There's no right answer. There's no right answer. You are allowed to answer no. no. This is the source for them. This is the source for them of the permission to say what you need to say in order to protect someone's feelings and to keep shalom bayi, to keep peace in the home. Paula? All brides are beautiful. She's also afraid because she knows the natural way of things. Like she So, so that your interpretation would would require her believing this, right? So she believes it, and and is fearful. So you're saying her fear is not about being in trouble for laughing and being discovered, even though she didn't laugh out loud. Her fear is not that some that this this being somehow knew she was laughing, but that she believes it. it has nothing to do with the laughing. It's that she believes this is going to happen and doesn't know how it's going to happen and is freaking out about what exactly that's going to mean. And, and laughing is misinterpreted. Fine. But if she she's believes feeling it, an emotion, she but it's not laughing. It's not a laughter. It's, it's a big emotion. So that God misinterprets her emotion. 
and has no compassion for the fact that she might be freaking out. Okay? And if it is fear that she does believe it, it could be fear of losing yet another child. Mm. The fear of losing yet another child. I was, I'm making an assumption that she's been barren for so long that perhaps that she, that she couldn't conceive, obviously, and so maybe she lost pregnancies before. Barren usually means you don't conceive. When the Torah says barren, okay. it usually means you don't conceive. Yeah, I'd and it's interesting, Abe, too, if I got that message. Why? Because I'm too old for that. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to go through it all again. Right? So, and you're younger than she yes. was. But she's... Okay, but you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look around you when women are in labor and know that it hurts, right? And know that just the pain and the next forty years, the pain of forty years, the pain like what the energy it takes to raise a child. So she doesn't have that energy anymore. So many of the mafarshim say she's concerned that that she's too old to do this. That she's too old to go through this. So you think, give me a baby, or are you going to give me the strength to deal with it? And the time yes. to know and that to child, child, right? Yeah. Um, and and by the way, we're not told that she gets that time, right? Because immediately after the akedah, what did I preach about? What was my sermon? What happens immediately after she the dies. binding of Isaac? She, she dies. She dies. So. She doesn't, in fact, that we know of. We don't know how long she lived right after the events of the Akedah. We don't know how old Isaac was at that time. That's my point. We don't know exactly how long she lived after the events of the Akedah. I'm sure the rabbis have figured it out. but Because um, they tell us her age when she died. But, but anyway, my point is she, she's, she had every right to be afraid, right? But go, go, go back further and... Let's put ourselves in ancient Mesopotamia and let's put ourselves with the princess, the matriarch, the priestess, if you will, um, who is older and is going to miraculously conceive. What's implied generally that is going to happen? How how does that usually go? Usually it's not going to be Joe Schmo from down the street who impregnates her. Right? What happens in this region a lot? You are impregnated by a god. So, likely, there's every reason for Sarah to be concerned that this is going to be a supernatural experience, and that's pretty freaky. Right? So, it is not unheard of in this region at all that a god would mate. It's not even unheard of in Torah. Right? When we saw the the Anakim, you know, are the children of you know these ones mating with human females. It, this region is full of those stories, mm-hmm. and so in every culture, in every culture in that region, and and since, right? Look yes, at Greece, yes. Leda, you know, Zeus and yeah. the Swan, you know, Leda and the Swan, the Virgin Mary, the Virgin Mary is comes out of exactly this tradition, tradition. of the miraculous pregnancy that is achieved by the God. Let us not kid ourselves. That's exactly what this story is. It's just not the God who's going to do it. But it is very clear that this is a story of a miraculous pregnancy for the matriarch that is caused by God. It's a creation myth, a creation story. It is a, it is a matriarchal miracle yes. story that now and it has to involve the patriarch because we're in a patriarchy now. Um, But probably, of course, Sarai's pregnancy and the founding of the people that come from her had to be miraculous. It had to be. So the assumption is Abraham did not impregnate. No. In our story, yes. Uh, My point is that it grows out of a very long, rich history of miraculous, the matriarch, the princess, the queen, the the representation of the goddess on earth is of course going to have a miraculous pregnancy. It It has to be. Just like the birth of the hero has to be miraculous. There has to be danger involved. His life has to be put in danger right away. He has to do something, you know, some feat, some test. Like there's a formula for these stories. Sarai 
is absolutely, we're getting what's left of the rich stories that would have surrounded the matriarch Sarai. We've lost most of it. But I believe this is definitely a remnant of her original story is that there is a miraculous pregnancy that is caused is clearly caused by God. Both now, before and since this story. Both before and since. In this case, we're going to involve a human father, just as Joseph had to be involved in the Mary story, right, when you're dealing with the patriarchal um, tradition. I know that the stories like Nadav and Aviga come later, but is there any concern about being consumed because of having contact with God? And I know Abraham has contact with God, but for her. Well, I mean, I think for sure, if, if she's... If she's understanding this to be a supernatural experience, you'd be silly not to be concerned what that means for me. There's also something strange here. God asks Abraham a question. Abraham doesn't answer, and Sarah does. Where? Right here. Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then Abraham doesn't answer God. Sarah does. Mm -hmm. He says nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, because he can't know. No, but I mean, he doesn't ostensibly about to ask you a question. You should probably come up with some kind of an answer. <laughs> right? So but, he has no idea what's going on. Yeah. Right? When he's asked, why did Sarah laugh? He has no idea what's happening. Yeah. Maybe he's clueless. Here, you tell, you, you tell <laughs> <Yeah>. her. <laughs> there she is. Ask her. I know she's right on the other side of that tent flap because I know my wife. <laughs> so ask her. So it takes a lot of chutzpah for her also. When her husband has been asked a question by God, she kind of upstages him with her answer. Right. And so um, this is this is Sarah. This is very much Sarah. This is she eavesdrops, right? She she's not gonna be passive, she's not gonna sit in the background. She steps up to say, you know, she lies. <laughs> Right to say I didn't laugh, even though we know she did, because the, narr- the omniscient narrator tells us that. And we're going to see what happens next. That she arranges for Yitzchak to become the heir. Right? She with Hagar. She um, last year we interpreted it a little differently than it tends to be interpreted, but that she frees Hagar, right? And um, and her and arranges for her son Yitzchak to become the patriarch and not Ishmael the elder son. So this begins the set of stories about Israel's matriarchs. This begins the stories of the, the four matriarchs, and if we add Bilhah and Zilpah, the concubines of Jacob, um, that, that really orchestrate much of the patriarchal history. And so what I love is that even as these texts you know, have morphed from what they originally were into now patriarchal texts, I love that it that the character of these women is not lost. Early Israel could have changed a lot more than it did um, in terms of who these women are and who they remain. They remain chutzpahdik. They remain strong. They remain manipulators because that was the power women had was to manipulate you know either the position of a child or of herself you know in the clan so that um, so that it, if it completely impacts the future of the Jewish people at every single turn. And the conflict with Islam also by Ishmael kind of being shoved aside. It's an early conflict. Yes and no. Um, they actually lived peacefully with the Ishmaelites. Mm-hmm. So like it, it, you know. Since then though, the view of, of Ishmael being pushed aside I think has been conflict with Islam looking back saying what happened how come we're not so I'm going to say Islam chose to look at these stories and take them as their own and And put on Ishmael right these are not their stories I mean they are now these were not their stories so Mm -hmm. that was a choice by Islam to say, we too are descendants of Abraham, we are descendants of Ishmael, and we claim this story and the outrage or whatever that goes with it's having been right. That is not the other way around. Time. That the descendants of Ishmael felt all of that and became the people who hate it, 
right? It goes the other way. It happened much later. It happened much, much yes. later. It, it doesn't happen until Islam. 900? Right, that's Season. a long time later. It's a really, it's thousands, like, you know, like this is 2000 BCE. Mm-hmm. That's 900. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So that's 3000 years. Like that, yes. it's a very long time mm-hmm. later that, that those stories are claimed Islam by. 600. Six hundred, sorry. Well, and this text very much gives them permission to go in that direction because, as I recall, it says, "You know, the Lord said to Hagar, something, and I will make a great nation again too. Don't worry." Right. right. So, so it's the permission is there for, to for uh, Islam to, to existence uh, to to not feel um, negative about their history being traced back to Abraham. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, for them, it was Ishmael who was who was bound on the altar. So, so they yes, so they reconstruct those stories. That's quite a change. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's amazing. I was like, what? Oh yeah. So, so they reconstruct these stories in a way that you know is absolutely not how necessarily we would interpret what happens with Ishmael. They're saying that the Dome of the Rock, al Oscar Mosque, is built on the point where the Akeda, you know, but it was Ishmael, not. It's Correct. All right. So we're going to watch now how the stories of these women unfold. We're going to watch um, uh, how chutzpahdik uh, Jewish women go back absolutely to the very, very beginning, beginning with um, Sarah Imenu and Avraham Avinu. And um, for us to really think about, based in, in this story and the tradition that comes after it about Avraham and Sarah, that... What does it mean to be, you know, we're all B'nai Avraham and Sarah. And when someone converts to Judaism, they convert through becoming a descendant of Avraham and Sarah. And so what does it mean to be a descendant of Avraham and Sarah, to become a descendant of the most hospitable right, man who rushes constantly to bring people in, you know, a strong chutzpahdik, courageous woman who is fruitful even into her um, elder years. And you know I'm using fruitful right, in a lot of different ways. Like, I, I think that these, these stories really for, forever have defined how we understand who it is we're supposed to be, the character of the people Israel that we're supposed to have, that we welcome, that we look beneath what presents itself. We look for the spark of God in every human being and welcome that, and that we are strong and take control um, when and where we need to, as does Sarah, and to be willing to journey out into the craziness that of leaving everything that's familiar and to journey out to like to be something else, to be something new, to be something different. And for me, to have had the strength for thousands of years to stay different, to stay different, and and to continue to leave every place we've ever been, and and still here we are, still here we are, vibrant. Strong, creative, welcoming, crazy, um, right? Uh, we, this for me is like, these are some of my favorite stories because it, this so defines who we are as the Jewish people. And I hope that we, we also are asking the question of how, how do we renew um, our commitment to being people who are um, welcoming and hospitable and brave. That tree that spreads and we are at the taproot, and so let us let us enjoy hanging out for a while with, with our mythic ancestors. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.